John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. This is Jesus' last teaching moment with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Jesus says in verse 16, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. This coming Tuesday, much of the culture will be focused on candy and costumes. And yet we as Christians have something way more important to celebrate. Do you know what that is? Reformation Day. 
On October 31st in the year 1517, a humble monk named Martin Luther took a step that would forever change the course of Christian history. He boldly nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, challenging the practices of the church and igniting the flames of the Reformation. It was a day that led many other reformers to help the church find its way back to God's word as the only supreme authority for faith and life. It led the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors, and it led to great hymn writing and to congregational singing, and it led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. Reformation Day is a day to thank the Lord for men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox. But it's also a day to remember our duty, our obligation to keep the light of the gospel at the center of what we do. But there's another aspect of Luther's life that's worth reflecting on today, one that connects us to the theme of our sermon and that's the Diet of Worms. Just as Jesus promised peace to his people in the face of tribulation, Martin Luther experienced God's peace during this pivotal moment in his life. At the Diet of Worms, Luther stood before the assembly, facing the weight of the church and the weight of the state and the very real threat of persecution. When he got there, he was asked two questions. There was a table laid out with all of the books that he had written. They asked, are these your books? And he said, yes. Then the question was, will you recant? Luther remained steadfast. And in that pivotal moment, he declared, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. It was a declaration of unshakable faith and unwavering commitment to the truths found in the gospel. In that moment of intense tribulation, Luther found peace that could only come from one source. Jesus Christ. And as we look at John chapter 16, the peace that Luther experienced is offered to all who follow Jesus. Last week, we look at the first part of chapter 16, where Jesus says that the, the Spirit is going to come and convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and that he would lead the disciples into the truth about Jesus. The Spirit would glorify Jesus and now in verses 16 to 22, Jesus prepares his disciples for his death by promising joy at his resurrection. In verses 23 to 28, he says that they will have access to the Father in prayer. And in verses 29 to 33, he commands them to take heart because he 
has overcome the world. And the main point of this sermon this morning is this. Take heart in your pain and sorrow, for Jesus brings joy and peace. Take heart in your pain and sorrow, for Jesus brings joy and peace. All right, well, now it's important for us to get into the mindset of the disciples at this moment. Think about it. They, they have left everything to follow Jesus. They have put all their hope in following him. And they, they think that he is the Messiah, and they are waiting for his kingdom to come. And then they hear Jesus say, where I am going, you cannot come. All throughout these past few chapters, he has said, I am going away. I'm going to the Father. And when Jesus talks about him going away, he's talking about his going to the cross. He's just told the disciples that it is to their advantage that he goes away and that the Spirit would come and bring conviction and, and bring the truth about Jesus. And then he says in verse 16 of our passage this morning, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And this confuses the disciples. None of it seemed to make any sense to them. It seemed as though Jesus were speaking in riddles. And so some of them said to one another, verse 17, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. They were confused. And we look at this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and we think, how can you not know what he's talking about? It's obvious. But we need to humbly realize that we would be in the same exact position as they were if we didn't know what we know. Right? We, we know what Jesus is talking about here because we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus going to the Father refers to his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the, to the right hand of God the Father. We know that in a few hours, the disciples for a little while will not see Jesus because he will be dead and buried. And yet we also know that again in a little while, they will see Jesus again because he will be raised from the dead. Jesus is talking about the disciples not seeing him while he's in the tomb, but then seeing them when he raises from the dead. And even though Jesus had foretold his death to them many times, these words were confusing and perplexing to them. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? He knows what they're asking, but if you follow along, he doesn't really answer it. He says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
Now, now we understand what he's saying here. You will weep and lament. You will weep and lament when I'm crucified, when I am dead, when I am buried. But the world will rejoice because the world will think that it finally got rid of the one who convicted them of their sin. Jesus is the light of the world who came into the world to shine light into the darkness. He convicted people of their sin and their wickedness, and so they hated him. Rather than repenting, the world seeks to get rid of Jesus. They try to trap him. They plotted ways to kill him, and so this is why the world is going to rejoice. They, they'll think that they have overcome him by killing him. But Jesus says at the end of verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus brings up the emotions of the disciples here. He says, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. Think about what they're going to have to go through. Seeing this man who they lived life day after day for three years, the man whom they loved and whom they knew loved them is nailed to a wooden cross. And he hangs there in agony and in pain. And then he dies. And then he's buried. And yet Jesus gives them assurance here that their grief, their sorrow would be turned into joy. Like David sang in Psalm 30, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This was true of the disciples then, and this is true for all who trust in Christ now. Yet it's important to think about what Jesus says here. He's not saying that the event that caused their sorrow would be replaced by a different event that would bring them joy. He says their sorrow will not be replaced by joy, but that their sorrow would be turned into joy. The same event, the cross, that would cause their sorrow would be the cause of their joy. The resurrection of Jesus turns the sorrow of the cross into our joy. That's why we rejoice in the death of Jesus and in the cross. That's why we talk about Christ's death in order to redeem us from our sins. And that's why we sing songs about Christ shedding his blood. That is why the Apostle Paul resolved to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. The cross is foundational for all Christian joy. Why? Why is the cross foundational for all Christian joy, because it is the basis of our redemption. And the resurrection of Jesus transforms the grief of his death into salvation joy. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he compares their sorrow turning into joy to childbirth. 
In verse 21, he uses an illustration. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, Diane and I haven't gone through this exactly, but the process of adoption is similar in the sense that there's a lot of pain and sorrow involved in the waiting process and all the unknowns and in the failed adoptions. And yet when that moment comes and you hold that baby in your arms, the joy outweighs the sorrow. The sorrow turns into joy. The struggle turns to, re to rejoicing that a baby is now here. It is through the pains of the labor that the joy of the birth occurs. But why does Jesus compare his death and resurrection to childbirth? Well, just as through childbirth, new life comes, and when, a, when a woman has a baby, so also with the death and resurrection of Jesus, it brings new life into the world. And just as a woman endures the curse of Genesis 3.16, the curse of pain in childbearing, so Jesus endures the judgment of the cross, and he conquers the curse of death when he is resurrected. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, So also, just like the woman in childbirth, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What an amazing promise. Why can no one take your joy from you? Because Jesus is raised from the dead. They can take your possessions. They can take your loved ones. They can take your freedoms and your rights and your jobs, everything from you. But if you believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, no one can take your joy. Because the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means that death, the final enemy, has been overcome, conquered. It means the curse has been broken. It means that life has come into the world. And now this doesn't mean that we're never going to experience sadness. But as we come to understand the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus, more and more we will have this deep-seated joy that the world cannot take away. If your joy is in money, if it's in sports or material things or sex, it will just be temporary. But true, lasting joy is only found in Jesus. Joy comes from being united to Jesus by abiding in him Joy comes from knowing that Jesus will last forever because he has been raised from the dead. He conquered sin and death, and so that means we now have resurrection hope, resurrection life beyond the grave. 
And so my question to you this morning is, do you live like you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Do you live like you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? The death and resurrection of Jesus is going to take the sorrow that the disciples feel and will turn it into joy, a joy that no one can take from them. And then Jesus transitions in, in verses 23 to 28, and he talks about this new access to the Father in prayer. Because he's going away. Jesus has been talking about how his going away is going to benefit his followers. In addition to the advantage of the Spirit coming, in addition to the fact that his going away is going to produce sorrow and yet turn their sorrow into joy, he now shares that his going away will allow them to share new intimacy with God the Father in prayer. Look at verses 23 and 24. In that day, now what day is he talking about? Clearly the day where their sorrow turns into joy. In that day, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So here Jesus shares about the disciples enjoying access to the Father in prayer through the name of Jesus that they did not have prior to his death and resurrection. But think about this for a second. Before this, no one had ever used the name of Jesus in prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus, and we think nothing of it because we've been taught to do that. And yet in these verses, we're taught on why we do it. Through the death and resurrection, a way to God has been made. Our sins had separated us from God, and yet what Jesus has been teaching, that he is the way, he is the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him, now a way has been made back to the Father. And the disciples might have thought that in order for their prayers to be answered, they, they would have to go physically to Jesus, and then Jesus would have to bring them to the Father. But what Jesus is saying is that on that day, in that day, you're not going to have to come to me. You will have access to God the Father. Jesus gives us this Trinitarian shape to prayer. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And then in verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So what Jesus is saying here is that because of his atoning work on the cross, because of his resurrection, people are able to approach God in the name of Jesus and know that their prayers will be answered. Unfortunately, some people have interpreted this verse to mean that if you tag Jesus' name on the end of your prayers, then you can ask for whatever you want and you'll get it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But prayer offered in the name of Jesus is, is prayer according to what he wants. 
It's prayer according to what Jesus stands for. And Jesus says that if you come to him, if you come to the Father in that way and pray in his name, he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So the purpose of all of this is joy. Joy. God is very interested in the well-being and happiness of his people. He knows that they're going to go through trials. But when they put their trust in him, he puts a joy in their heart that cannot be taken away. And that joy is connected to prayer. Jesus is not only saying that when our prayers are answered, we're going to have joy. But through prayer itself, we're going to receive joy. In times of prayer, we experience communion and fellowship with God. Something we didn't have outside of Christ. That's why so many Christians talk about having joy in the midst of their suffering. Because their suffering leads them to prayer and then as they lean on God in prayer, it brings them so much joy. Have you experienced that joy? It's when you have fellowship and communion with God in prayer. Verse 25, Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. He's acknowledging that he hasn't come right out and, and told them that I'm going to die, and you're going to be sad, and then you're going to be happy and joyful when I raise from the dead. He didn't speak that way. All throughout his ministry, he used figures of speech. He said, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. You are the branches. I am the vine. He just used the metaphor of a woman in labor. But then he says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the Father. He says, the hour is coming. What hour is that? Well, after the resurrection, he speaks plainly to his disciples. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke talks about how Jesus opened the minds of his disciples to understand the Scriptures. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke says that for 40 days, Jesus was teaching and explaining things to his disciples. And Jesus had also promised that when the spirit of truth comes, that he would lead them into all truth. After his death and resurrection, there's going to be this full and sufficient and understandable revelation that the disciples will receive through the spirit. And, and we can say that we have that as well. We have it in the New Testament. Jesus came through on his promise. We have the plain teaching about the Father. Jesus is going away. It's going to be to their advantage. The, the sorrow of, over, of his leaving them is going to turn to joy and the access to the Father in prayer. Jesus' teaching is going to be understandable, but then Jesus goes back to talking about prayer again. He talks about this deeper intimacy with the Father. Look at verse 26. He says, In that day you will ask in my name, 
And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. So think about this. The disciples were never taught by their parents to pray our Heavenly Father. They didn't have that access. But now Jesus has revealed the Father and tells them that they can go directly to the Father themselves because he has made the way. And then he says, the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now that doesn't mean that we earn God's love. We don't earn God's love by loving Jesus. Jesus means that we can be assured of God's love for us through our love for and belief in Jesus. But if you don't yet have John chapter 16, verse 27, underlined or highlighted in your Bible, do it right now. For the Father himself loves you. There may be some of you here this morning, and you know that Jesus loves you. He gave his life for you. And yet, yet you may have some dark thoughts about the Father. You may know for sure that Jesus loves you, but less confidence that the Father does. Or maybe you think that the Father loves you only because Jesus died for you. Sometimes that's what people think. They think that that's what the gospel is, that you're a sinner, but the good news is that God loves you because Jesus died for you. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's because God the Father loves you that he sent his son. 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you love Jesus and you believe that God the Father sent him, know that God the Father himself loves you. He loved you before you even loved him. We need to fix our minds on these words of Jesus. The Father himself loves you. And so when you see Jesus' love for you, you have seen the Father's love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. For the Father himself loves you. If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, are you going to the Father in the name of Jesus and praying to him, having fellowship with him? Are you enjoying the intimacy with the Father that Jesus has made possible 
through the cross. Do you live like the Father loves you? Now, if you're here and you, you don't believe in Jesus and you, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, do you know that you can have all of this? You can have all of this. You can have a heavenly Father who will never leave you or forsake you. You can have a Father who loves you. And the only thing keeping you from this is you. All you have to do is turn from your sin and believe in Jesus and he will save you and he will love you. Won't you come to Jesus this morning? Jesus says that he calls his sheep by name. Do you hear him calling your name this morning? Respond to his voice. Verse 28, Jesus summarizes his first coming. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. Pretty simple, right? And that clear statement makes the disciples respond. Look at verse 29. They say, the disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They say, Jesus, we believe you. We believe you, Jesus. In John chapter 13, verses 37 and 38, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You remember how Jesus responds? Will you lay down your life for me? And then he goes on to predict Peter's denial. We see the same thing here in chapter 16. The disciples say, this is why we believe you came from God. Verse 31, Jesus answers them with a question. Do you now believe? It's just like the question he asked Peter. And just as he said to Peter that he was going to deny him three times, look at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. We know that Peter did deny Jesus, but Peter came back, and he repented. He wept bitterly, and Jesus restored him. And eventually, Peter did do what he said he would do. He did lay his life down for Jesus. These guys say, we believe that you came from God. And Jesus tells them, you're going to scatter just to protect your own skin. And they do. They all flee when the soldiers show up in the garden. But just like Peter, they come back. And they testify to the end of their days that Jesus came from God. This shows us that the success of the mission of Jesus doesn't depend on us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're saying to yourself, I might consider these claims 
if I didn't know so many Christians. That's how it's always been. Even with the very first Christians, they were scattered. They denied Jesus. They were failures just like us. Just like the people who may have failed you. And so I want to encourage you this morning to not look at us, but to look to Jesus. To look at Jesus who is so powerful that he can bring failures back and make them those who overcome the world. These failure, fearful disciples in Acts chapter 2 Go out and preach the gospel and turn the world upside down. Jesus is powerful that he can bring failures back and make them those that overcome the world. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 32, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. All humans desert him, but he is not alone. And then in verse 33, these last words that he says to his disciples before he starts to pray to the, to the Father in, in John chapter 17, the last word in verse 33, he's going to summarize everything that he's been saying ever since the foot washing. He says in verse 33, I have said all of these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These are the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he sees them again after a little while. He's leaving but if they believe what he has said through these chapters, through 13, 14, 15, 16, if they believe that, they will have peace. Believers have peace only in Christ, true lasting peace only in Christ because he is our rock. The only way we are able to have peace with God is because of what Jesus has done. Our sins have been forgiven. And yet we also experience peace as the Holy Spirit brings about assurance and hope. We have peace through prayer. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. They're going to have tribulation in this world. They're going to face the same troubles as their Savior did. The world is going to hate them just as it hated him. And the same is for us. Take heart. Not because Jesus is saying that you're going to have an easy life with no suffering. No, take heart from his declaration that he has overcome the world. 
And think about this. Jesus is so certain of his victory that he uses it in the past tense when he describes it to his disciples. He hasn't yet gone to the cross and he hasn't yet been raised, but it is so sure that he can speak in the past tense. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? It means that he has been tempted in every way, as we are, and yet he did not sin. It means that he didn't love his own life, and he was willing to lay it down. He overcame the world because he offered up his sinless life to pay the debt of those who believe in him. He conquered sin and death and Satan in his resurrection. He fought the good fight and he finished the race and he kept the faith and fulfilled his ministry. What it means that Jesus has overcome the world means that those who trust in Jesus, those who remain faithful to him, those who keep repenting of their sin can overcome as well. Even if we're rejected, even if they kill us, we can overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We're not promised that things will go well for us in this world. In fact, Jesus tells us the exact opposite. We will experience sorrow and pain and hatred and persecution. But joy and peace don't come from better circumstances. True and lasting joy and peace come from Jesus and what he has done. Jesus commands us to take heart. He has overcome the world. He has died for our sins. He's been raised from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and now offers us new life. The resurrection turns sorrow into joy. It turns fear into courage. And we will struggle from time to time. We will lack peace. We will lack joy. We will lack courage. And in these moments, we are to remember what Christ has done and take heart. The fact that Jesus has overcome the world means that sin has no claim. Sin has no claim. Death has no victory. And Satan has no chance of success. Take heart in your pain and sorrow. For Jesus brings joy and peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is victorious over the world. And Lord, we thank you for what Jesus did and what you have done by your grace in giving us the ability to turn from our sin, to believe in Jesus, and to follow him. We pray, Lord, that you would turn our times of sorrow into joy. We're thankful that the joy that we have in you cannot be taken from us. And that even though we will experience pain and suffering in this life, we can take heart and have peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you love us 
We pray that you would help us to live like we believe that Jesus has been raised and to live like those who believe that our Father in heaven loves us. We ask this in the name of Jesus.